0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at DeRoshi-Meyer.org.
1: This morning I was pondering um, the ending of Job. And we've only covered the first two chapters, but I'm going to jump ahead because I know that I often talk longer than I wish and I might not get there, so I'm going to jump right to the end really fast. (laughs) One of the challenges I've had in my soul working with the book of Job is that it ends so well. What am I to do with the fact that this man had this massive pain, and then all of a sudden he's given, after all this season of pain, he's given back his... House and his goods and more and more children. What what do I do with that? What what is it doing? And and this in my meditation uh, this week, I've I've been deeply encouraged by the ending of Job, and I think this is what it's for. So I want to frame everything that we've covered so far. I, I just want to put this stamp here at the end of this book. Is this is where we're headed? I think it's functioning very much like the the resurrection of Lazarus. When we get up to John chapter 11, Jesus has done amazing signs, but He's raised no one from the dead. Why does He let Lazarus die? He loved Lazarus. And the reason He lets Lazarus die is so that you and I might be absolutely confident in His declaration that He has the power to raise the dead. He gives us a tangible sign in space and time. I mean, Lazarus rises and then he dies again. We don't read about it in Scripture, but he, he obviously would have died again, anticipating the resurrection. But so that you and I would know that indeed, Jesus is not just speaking words. He's not just one who can give sight to the blind and give... Hearing to the deaf. He's one who can take a dead man and make him alive so that we can know in space and time that indeed he has the power to make things work out well. Even if you go all the way to the grave in deep pain, the resurrection will come. Similarly, in the book of Job, I think that it ends the way it does, not just to put a fairy tale ending on a very rough story. That's not the purpose. The purpose is so that you and I know that Jesus cares, that God cares, that Yahweh cares, and that He will fix it. And He actually gives a story of a man who underwent massive trauma and then saw things turn around. It doesn't make the, take the massive trauma away. It doesn't take the deep loss away. But here's a, ma, a man who went through the suffering and found a settled existence under the sovereignty of God so that you and I can know wherever we're at, if we are fearing God simply because of who He is and not because of what He gives or what He takes away, if we're fearing God because of who He is through the deepest valleys of life, we can be confident that what happened in space and time for Job will happen for us in space and time, even if it means on the other side of the grave. (coughs) It gives us hope that God is this big, that Satan's purposes are not the ultimate power God's purposes are. Lazarus rose from the grave in order to give all of us evidence that Jesus indeed has the power that He declared He had. And Job's life turns around so that you and I can know that God has the power to turn around our lives as deep and as dark as they get. The book of Job. I laid it out, and I I think this is the idea. This is how it reads. It reads like a drama in five acts. Now, where did we get to last week? Here's where we got. We, We covered just the prologue, the setting, scene one, this heavenly confrontation, and Job's first test. All of his goods and all of his Children dead. God gave. God took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all these things Job did not sin with his lips. Scene 2. Another heavenly confrontation. Satan goes up unto the sovereign Yahweh. And God again says, Have you considered my servant Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? He fears you only because, in the first instance, you put a hedge of protection around him. In the second instance, he fears you because you haven't taken his life. Skin for skin, you take his life. You get him down and wear his own body down, and he'll curse you to your face. And God is working something much bigger than Job or any of his family knew a cosmic testimony of the worth, his own worth. So, in order to synthesize the theology, I thought I would go into the New Testament. Two books that parallel one another, Colossians and Ephesians. Let me put them together and see the unbelievable theology that we get out of these two books in relation to the message that we've picked up last week in the book of Job. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including the evil one. Satan is like a dog on a leash. And God is holding the leash and He never lets it go. And Satan can only go where God permits him to go. Therefore, as hard as it gets, we can be absolutely confident that God is still on the throne. We have to or else we will have no hope at all. If God's purposes can be thwarted, if God is getting caught off guard by your and my pain, where are we going to go for help? Job says, No, God is not getting caught off guard. And here's Paul's testimony. By the Son Jesus, all things were created. All things, hear that. Not just the good things. All things were created in heaven and on earth. The visible things that you and I can taste and see and touch, but also the invisible. Which invisible things? The thrones and dominions, the rulers and authorities were created through Him and for Him. I want to note the invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. When Jesus went to the cross, He didn't conquer Rome. He conquered the enemies in the spiritual realm that held each of us captive. Invisible things for Him. Let me unpack each of these. The very evil powers that we fight against. Not against flesh and blood. But what are we fighting against? The rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They were created by Jesus. This is not a random universe. There is not God and Satan eternally. There is Yahweh over all things. The one and only. There is no one else in the pantheon of heaven. And why did God create through His Son even the evil invisible powers? They were created for Jesus. What does that mean? Consider this. So here's Colossians 1. Here's Colossians 6. Colossians 2. There's no Colossians 6. Colossians 2, verse 12. Notice it says, He created the invisible things, the thrones, the dominions, the rulers and authorities for Him. There is evil in this world so that there is evil to be overcome. There is brokenness in this world so that there is brokenness to be healed from. There is sin in this world so that sin can be triumphed over all at the cross. Jesus disarmed the very things that He made at the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Job portrays a God who is seated on His throne and all the other spiritual beings come to His throne. Satan, the accuser, with a specific purpose in a specific place on earth, roaming to and fro, looking to see who he can take and accuse. And God actually says, have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless, a man of integrity who fears God in everything. And off Satan goes, and God's holding the leash. Do not touch his body. Then, second test, do not take His life. Why allow such evil powers to reign in this world? In order that the cross might come. In order that Jesus might be, His his power that is innate to Him eternally might be shown to truly be more powerful than all evil. Without a cross, there would not be that display. And you and I are part of this broken world. We're part of the problem. And into this world, Jesus comes. And His supreme moment of exaltation is also our supreme moment of experiencing love. Because it's our sin that gets overcome. It's our evil that finds an answer. It's our pain that finds healing. Here's Paul. This is an amazing prayer and all of it is in the context of suffering. And I want us—we're going to come right down here, but I just want us to hear it. And if you're, this is as this morning as I was working through this text, I was praying this over you. I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. I want you to know Him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know, that you might know what is the hope to which He has called you. To not forget it, to not allow the clouds to move so tightly in that you can't see the light on the other side. But that you might know that there's true hope. The hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power? Towards us, He is not an inept God. He is powerful. Oh, that we might know His power. Toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above the very beings that He created in the invisible sphere, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, the very things that Colossians 1.16 said were created by the Son of God. Created by Him, for Him. So that at His resurrection, He might be shown to be supreme over them. Above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the the church, which is the body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And then one of the big things that we learned last week is this. That our perseverance and hope displays God's wisdom and ultimately His worth to the very rulers and authorities Christ conquered at the cross. We don't see it all the time. So often our problems just make us think about ourselves when really God has, like Job, said, consider my servant Job. They only fear you, God, because you make their lives easy. And God is willing to enter into this cosmic experience wherein Satan will press and push and force the promises of God to be called into question. Will Job keep going? And God is confident that He will because God has Job in His hands. To what end? To me this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, Paul says, the unsearchable riches of Christ so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Our persevering hope in God is putting something on display for Satan. Putting on display something for the demons. And God wants it to happen. It's why He's created a people who are so caught up with the worth of Christ, so awed by the sin that's been overcome. And the mercy that they've received, they will not let Him go, confident that He will not let them go. And this is God's wisdom. The cross is foolishness. But it's wisdom that we as the body of Christ would bear our cross daily. In order that, like Christ had to bear His cross before His resurrection, we as the body of Christ might bear our cross before our resurrection May God give you endurance. This is not an easy message, but may He give you endurance. And may you know that there are much greater things at stake. Eternal, global, cosmic, universal things at stake in how we persevere. Act 2. As we go here, I'm going to pray again. Dear Lord, I, I do ask, I plead, that you would meet us now. Help us through this material. There's so much material to cover and I want to try to make it as simple and clear as possible. I want people to hear the message of your word and magnify your greatness as you desire to display it in this book. Move us to feel what we're supposed to feel as we listen and as we watch this drama play out for us in the book of Job. Help us, I pray. Amen. Okay, there is this big section right in the middle of the book. It's the body of the book, 28 chapters of dialogue. And it's very easy to get lost in these chapters. But they are structured very intentionally. If you just follow the pattern of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar you'll see that they don't speak in random, but they speak each in turn three times. And interspersed right into the middle of their speeches, Job is responding. So Job starts out with a statement in chapter 3, and then we've got three specific rounds where we move through Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job. Each of the three friends, if you want to call them that, They each lay out a case, and Job responds. Then they all do it again. Each lays out a case, and Job responds. The first round is longer than the second round, and the second round is longer than the third round. And if you and I are tracking, I mean, if you picture the book of Job like a play, it would be much easier to see what happens. Because the three friends are over on this side, and Job is wallowing in the mire on this side. And there's this one spotlight on him and there's a spotlight on the three friends and each one stands up and comes and talks. And then he goes and sits down while Job rises and then the next guy comes up. And what would be so astonishing to us, if we were watching this, we would see, we would feel the tension, but it's very easy to get lost in a big drama when we're not watching it actually be acted out. Or when we're not reading the book all at one sitting. But... Zophar doesn't get up. We go through Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, Bildad, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, Bildad, Eliphaz, Bildad, and then Zophar doesn't get up. And instead, the speaker in the book, the narrator, tells us, and Job said something else. And all of a sudden, right there, there's a transition. And the movement of the book has just taken a big leap forward because now we're getting an initial climax to the book. Job's words in that speech, right where we would have expected Zophar to talk, when Job talks, this is the equivalent of an intermission. It it leaves us hanging here, and then Job comes in, and this is where he begins to talk about wisdom. Where is wisdom found? It's like this respite out of the pain. And, and it's, it's like he's, he's not even talking about exactly what everybody's been dialoguing about. He just all of a sudden draws attention to the greatness of God. God alone knows where wisdom is found. And he's giving us a key hinge to, try, to understanding the nature of this book. A God who is beyond our grasp. And then he kicks in again and gives a final defense before Elihu comes up and then Yahweh's speeches dominate the biggest part. They they are the ultimate climax of the book. But I just want to walk through as quickly as I can all 28 chapters. (laughs) Here's Job in chapter 3. So have your Bibles open. I'm going to fly through really fast. And I've given myself help. I know which text I'm going to read. And I'm hoping it will help you feel the thrust of this book. Here's Job. Oh, why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? I'm in chapter 3, verse 16. There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease. Together they are not the voice of the taskmaster, the small and the greater there in the grave, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter soul, who long for death, but it comes not? He's longing for death. Oh, that I would have never even been born, he says. And his three friends, who've been sitting for a week in silence, just letting him mourn, cannot but talk. Look at, Eliphaz in chapter 4. If one ventures a word, verse 2, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can stop from speaking? I have to talk, he says. And then we read what he has to say. Look at verse 7. Remember who that was innocent ever perish, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity... And sow trouble, reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they are consumed. It's the harvester's mentality. What you sow, you reap. You're reaping pain, it must be because you are a sinner. Chapter 6, 1-4. through four. Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, says Job. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Verse 24. Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. Talk to me, Job says. How forceful are Upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Can't you just let me be in pain? Don't you just recognize that some things that people say when they're hurting are mere wind? It's not time for theological critique of the specifics Chapter 7, verse 20. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? And he's talking to God. Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you, O God? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity, if indeed there is some? For, for now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. In comes Bildad. Chapter 8, verse 1. How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, then He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great." Chapter 9, verse 1. Truly I know that it is so. I know that had I sinned and I repent, then the end would be great. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with this God, one could not answer Him once in a thousand times. He is wise in His heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened Himself against Him and succeeded? No one. Verse 14. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was truly listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can stand against God? Who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Chapter 10, verse 2 I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you condemn, condemn, contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, and favor the designs of the wicked? Have, your eyes of, have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? As your days as the days of man... Are your days as the days of man or your years as a man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of my hand? Zophar, chapter 11, verse 1. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and you and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in his, in his understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Verse 13. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward Him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. So what are we hearing? Apparently, because at the end of the book, God is going to make all things clear. He's going to... Spank the three friends who have talked wrongly about God. You have not talked rightly about me like my servant Job has. So there's something wrong about what they're saying. It's it's too simplistic. I think there's a tension going on among the Israelites to try to understand a book like Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. That declares blessing over the faithful and curse on the disloyal, the unbelieving, the rebellious and the stubborn. How do we put all that together? In Psalm 1 it made it very clear. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. But right now they're standing fine. And we have a choice to make whether we'll stand with them in the counsel of the wicked, or whether we will be in God's way meditating on His law. But what does it do? It puts the promises of Deuteronomy, the curses and the blessings, it puts them, Psalm 1 does, in eternal perspective. Right now there are people who are wicked to the core and succeeding well. And there are people, like Job, says the narrator, blameless and upright. Says Yahweh, blameless and upright. That's not perfect. But really, really upright before God. Remember the very first scene? Job is a man who spends time at the altar. This is the age before there was the single substitute. He's got to pay the substitute for his sons and by implication, I think, himself over and over again he's going to the right place he's in the right place his blamelessness his integrity his uprightness has been validated by God and we have to have a worldview that says godly people can experience deep deep pain physical pain spiritual pain relational trauma Bad things do happen to godly people, and it's all because of the curse. Cold, simplistic theology that does not provide a comprehensive understanding of God's work in the world. Here's what I hear. God is good, and therefore surely has made a good world. God causes bad things to happen to bad people. He rewards good people. Therefore, one can infer from the events whether God is punishing you or not. That's the essence, I think, of their message. Or, to put it into Zophar's words, sorry, Eliphaz's words, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And God says there's more to this world than that principle. Ultimately, that principle is true. When we're talking about eternal values, God will put down all evil and He will raise up all those who have been blood-bought. But right now, in the short term, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, we don't see right now that indeed all things have been put underneath Jesus' feet. It doesn't look like it, but they're there. He is ultimately, over all things, He's been exalted already to the right hand of the Father, but one day it will become absolutely clear. And that's part of the message of the book of Job. How does Job respond? Turn to chapter 27 with me. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 6 first off. As God lives who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood. My tongue will not utter deceit. Here's the heart of a man who wants to stay upright before his God. His wife said, curse God and die. And he said, can we receive only good from God and not also the evil things, the harm, the bad? Let me just pause for a second to talk about... God is somehow able to be sovereign over all things, including evil, and yet in a way that He is never evil. We have to understand that part. Jonathan Edwards described it this way, and it's been a helpful analogy to me. We can't talk about God's active sovereignty and passive sovereignty. All of it's active. He's in charge of everything. But we can talk about God's positive Agency and his negative agency. Let me describe it. All of it is active, but sometimes God accomplishes things by removing his presence rather than by putting it on. Think about the sun. What do we receive from the sun positively? The sun positively pours forth light, pours forth warmth. And it's only when the sun is withdrawn that darkness moves in and that cold comes. In, this, in a comparable way. Edwards argues, how do we have a God who is absolutely sovereign over all things, including the evil of taking Christ unjustly to the cross? How do we have God in charge of that, yet in a way that He is not tainted by sin? Because God only positively brings forth good. It's when God chooses, specifically intentionally at direct times to withhold his positive agency that sin will necessarily and naturally follow direct exactly as he intends it to follow. It's a withholding in such a way controlling all things that when he withholds himself in a certain way pain comes, problem happens. And we can read it God does this. He causes this. That's the active side of it. It's all active. His sovereignty is absolutely all active and yet in a way that He's never tainted by evil. He's not the doer of any wicked thing ever. And yet He's still on the throne and never caught off guard when anything bad comes. He's the one who chooses when He will withhold His positive influence in such a way that that evil will necessarily and naturally follow exactly as He intends it to come about. Why? Why does He create a world like this? It must have something to do with His glory and His love. It must have something to do with God in His absolute being, in His holiness. That there must be something about His holiness that we couldn't enjoy, delight in, Desire, crave, long for in a way that we, that, that we would miss something about God had He not created a world where suffering would really happen. It is right for a God who is all-glorious to let us see and savor Him for all of who He is. Not just for part of who He is. We would never see God as one who has power to conquer sin. We wouldn't understand what mercy was. We wouldn't grasp His right to send people to hell. We wouldn't grasp His sovereign authority to choose upon whom He will bestow mercy and upon whom He will harden. In creating a world as big, in creating a world where He is absolutely, he, he's absolutely over even the evil things, and yet in a way that He is not tainted with evil, it creates a context wherein He will be exalted over all. And we will delight in Him. We will be able to love and experience Him as a God who bestows mercy on one who is a sinner who celebrates the cross, magnifying Jesus as the great Savior, both saving me from God's wrath and saving me from the curse in all of its facets. Orphan status, cancer, car accidents, failed surgeries, loss, lack, loss of job, lack of healing. In that moment He comes and He wants to display Himself in a way that we would never see Him. He wants us to experience Him as a helper. He wants us to treasure Him as our hope. By Him, even the invisible things were created for Him. And His working for His own glory is not separate from His deepest love for us. Because it's when He is exalted that we are helped. When we see it, when we see it, when we can open up our arms to Him, He's magnified and we are satisfied. And He wanted to put such worth, His worth, on display for the rest of the world. Look at chapter 28, verse 12. Where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. It is not found in the land of the living. We don't get it. We don't understand wisdom. But we will not say that God is operating in a way that is not wise. But wisdom isn't found here. The deep says, oh, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold. Silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, this wisdom. No mention shall be made of a coral or of a crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. Verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed even from the birds of the air. Abaddon and Death say, We have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it. This is the great pause in the middle of the drama. God understands the way to it. Can you relate with where I am, Job says? Even the inner dialogue with others who are accusing when I don't think I've done anything wrong. When I'm crying out in the midst of my pain, having gone through two massive tests. And the second test is still continuing. How is this wise, God? I don't understand it, but this I know. You are the one who holds wisdom. It comes from you. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and He sees everything. Everything. Everything He sees in your life. He knows everything that's going on. It is not absent from Him. And He cares. That's the message of this book. He looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. When He gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, nothing happening by chance, every raindrop apportioned. He made the decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then He saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. So what do we do? What is our role in such a world? He says to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, is that is wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. To fear the Lord. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I will make an everlasting covenant with you so that I will not turn from doing good to you. I will put the fear of me in your hearts so that you will never turn from me. We have a God who is holding us. Job was experiencing a God who was holding him. God had displayed His worth to Job in such a way that Job could not let this God go. God was so confident that His worth would be magnified, that He allowed Satan to enter in. He let that leash make its way over to Job's life. May God God give us that kind of endurance. Oh God, help those in this room who need that kind of endurance. He's not getting an answer. Why is this happening to me? No answer has been given yet. And yet he just pauses and he says to the audience who's watching this drama play out, his own life play out, and he just says, God holds wisdom and we can just begin to tap into it just a little bit by fearing God and keeping His commandments. Don't take Him lightly. Fear Him in view of His bigness. He's as big as this book declares Him to be. And then follow Him. There's good kinds of fear. Certain kinds of fear keep us alive. I tell my three-year-olds, don't touch the red ring on top of the stove. The very fire that's going to supply them lunch could hurt them. The very water that will fill their bellies and keep them going is the same water in which they could drown. There is healthy kinds of fear And God is calling us to revere Him, to tremble. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God. It's God who works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Is He safe? No, He is not safe. But He is good. And Job is calling us. He just comes out to the the front of the stage. All else goes black and he says... This world cannot grasp God's ways. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. And yet, what does He say? How inscrutable are His ways. We can't judge the ways of God. Who has known the mind of the God? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He should be repaid? No one. He is God. I am not. And even when our soul gets to the lowest point, we can't forget who God is. Don't stop remembering who He is. Fear God. Keep His commandments. It continues. Job does something now. Chapter 31. It's his final appeal, it says in the ESV. This is what he says. I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not lust upon a woman. He goes on to say, I haven't been a liar or a deceiver. He says he hasn't traveled off the right path or allowed his heart to be lured in by what he sees or acquired any blemish by what he has touched. He's not lusted after a woman or played around with his neighbor's wife. He has not failed to heed the formal complaints of his own servants against him. He hasn't failed to care for the less fortunate. He hasn't rejected, rejoiced at his enemy's destruction. He hasn't failed to provide for his own or acted as a hypocrite, concealing his iniquity in the eyes of others. He hasn't profaned his land by failing to pay his workers and land managers. He just goes through a whole chapter just saying, God, I haven't done this, I haven't done this, I haven't done this. And apparently what's going on is he's feeling, I know I haven't done anything wrong. And that really makes it seem like you are indeed not right. Enter Elihu. Elihu burned with anger at Job. Verse, chapter 32, verse 2. Because he justified himself rather than God. He's not condemning his brokenness. He's not, I don't think, even condemning or denying that he's a man of integrity. But Job does something that we need to be very careful of in the midst of our pain. And that is... It's, it, it's, it's intriguing that chapter 31 comes after chapter 28, because it seems as though up to chapter 28, Job is where he needs to be. And then chapter 31 takes it an extra step. Yes, all wisdom is from God. Fear God, keep His commandments. I don't understand God. And then in chapter 31, it, it, it's like it takes it one extra level. And all of a sudden, he's, he's not justifying God. God, you are right in what you're doing. You are right. He's, take, he's, he's, I think, missing what he just taught in chapter 28. Elihu is saying, you're justifying yourself rather than God. In the midst of pain, this is my synthesis, the proper response is not self-justification, but God-dependence. Resting in the awesome creator and sustainer of all who bestowed on man amazing blessing and purpose, and yet whose ways are always higher than man's. Three verses from Elihu's speeches. I will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. Behold, God is exalted in power. Who is a teacher like Him? Who is prescribed for Him His way? Can you say, you have done wrong? That's at least what he's hearing in Job's words when he's declaring, I haven't done this, I haven't done this, I haven't done this. What's at stake is, Why then are you letting me experience this kind of pain? And Elihu says, Who can say that God's doing it the wrong way? This may have nothing to do with your own sinfulness. But does that mean that God's unjust in bringing this pain on you? The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice and abundant." In righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. And then we come to the Lord's words. It's intriguing that Elihu is never mentioned again. The three friends show up in God's final declarations, but Elihu doesn't. And, and that's led some scholars to say: is Elihu a good guy or a bad guy? Is he. Twisted, or is he right? And I still am scratching my head a little bit. I'm not exactly sure. I think he's a good guy. Yahweh has three speeches. Job has a small response in the middle. Can you do all the things that I have done? That's the gist of the first two talks. And in doing so, he reaffirms what Elihu has said. Let me just read these. These are just amazing. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you have come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your day began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know all this. Have you entered the storehouse of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who is cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on land where no man is to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule in the earth? Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Who has let the wild donkey go free? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you... Make him leap like the locust? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Just feel the weightiness of that. We're just supposed to magnify in the bigness of God and just let our mouths be kept silent. Just to feel the weightiness. He's in charge. Every little detail... Last fall, I, I think I said this in here already, last fall there was a moment I was walking around the field that's next to our house over and over and over again and I finally paused and I just walked over and I moved the grass away and I just stopped. For a full 60 seconds, I just looked at the ground. I looked at the ants. I looked at the little bits of, the, the small bits of grass and the, the big bits of grass. I looked at dirt and stones. Every little movement, every little rock, every little stalk, most people in the world are not looking at them at all. They may never be seen again by any person on the earth to pause and notice, but God is the one who put them there and He's the one who's making the ant move and God is taking pleasure in every aspect of His creation all the time. Every little bit of it his big person is in charge of. And we don't need to doubt when we're in the season of pain that he knows and that he cares and that he is still on the throne and none of this is catching him off guard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Yahweh says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job says, Behold, I I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further. I'm done. God says, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? I know that you can do all things. Hear this. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. He knows it. That means this pain that I'm experiencing is not the thwarting of your purpose. There's so much hope there. Even though you have lots of questions still, there's so much hope there because your tomorrows are in God's hands. And you don't have to worry about Him getting pushed around by the devil no he pushes the devil around there is no pain too big or too far from the love of God he is on the throne and he cares no purpose of yours can be thwarted I know this I've uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me which I didn't know I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eyes see you therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes In all of this, in all God's words, he never mentions Job's suffering. He never gives us an answer for why his pain got to the level that it was. Remember at the beginning of the book, he said, You incited me against Job with no reason. No human reason. That is not on the basis of any sin, anything wrong in the person of Job. He never finds out why he suffered. He doesn't, but we know. We're the reader who's been able to look into the heavenlies, who saw the drama unfold in the courtroom of heaven. We saw more than Job saw, and it gives us a window even into our own pain. But the answer to, "Why do the righteous suffer?" is not Because we're so wicked. It doesn't even talk about it. It doesn't even give us a clue. Why did he suffer? There's no reason in Job that it happened. Instead, the answer is given on a cosmic level. It had to do with God. With God wanting to display to even the invisible world that he is worth fearing simply because of who he is. And not because of what he gives or takes away. God is worth worshipping. God is worth following. God is worth trusting. Simply because of who he is. And not because of what he gives or takes away. God scolds Job's three friends. But then he affirms Job. And the book ends With the Lord restoring the fortunes of Job. When he prayed for his friends. Isn't that amazing? Job prayed for his friends. Some friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had. Pardon? He still called them friends. He still called them friends. Why do the righteous suffer? No answer is given to why me, why this long, why this hard. We're told that God desires to display a picture of his worth even into the invisible realm. So we fear God because of who he is and not because of what he gives or he takes away. And the story, I mean, it's given to people because we just need to hear it. We need to remind ourselves. Why does the book of Job end the way it does? So as in the story of Lazarus, we need tangible evidence that God is able to bring good out of evil. Job's life gives us hope in a God who is able. Let's pray. Father, You are a God who is able. And some people in this room right now, today, this minute, need to be reminded that You are able to bring good out of deep, deep pain. And I pray that You would minister to them and that You would let Your love shine upon them and that they would find You, a big God who is not distant, but who is near. You are not safe, but you are good. Job experienced that goodness. Father, the curse is so thick. Darkness is so dark sometimes. I pray that there would be respite, that dawn would come in the lives of so many in this room who are looking, longing. I pray that you would bring comfort and help and hope And I pray that You would help those who are in the midst of pain to not sin by doubting, by denying Your right to do what You will. But, oh God, work good for Your people. Work good for Your people and in the process proclaim to the devil and all of his minions that You are worth trusting. You are worth loving. Proclaim it through our lives. Keep us, hold us, so that it might be proclaimed. You are worth it. In Christ I pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.